Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew Roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 7, Daniel, chapter 2, the second continuation. We're still in Daniel chapter 2. And we will today look at Daniel's interpretation of King Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Now to review briefly, Daniel has told Nebuchadnezzar the dream that the king had dreamt, but has yet to tell him what it means, except in the broadest sense. The king had demanded that before he was willing to let someone give him their interpretation of his dream, first they had to tell him the precise content of his dream as proof of their ability as a seer. Well, all of the Chaldean seers in Babel admitted they didn't have that kind of ability. And when Daniel approached the king, he too confessed that he was incapable. However, the God of Israel knew the king's dream because it was he who had implanted it in the sleeping king's mind. And this God decided to tell Daniel the dream's details as well as the secret of its meaning because the Lord wanted King Nebuchadnezzar to understand it. Now secondarily, because the king had ordered all seers in the capital city of Babel to be executed because he saw them as fakes for their inability to tell him his dream, the divine revelation of the dream by God to Daniel saved not only those Chaldean seers' lives, but also the lives of Daniel and his three Jewish comrades, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now the dream consisted of a fearsome statue in the image of a man. The head of it was gold, the chest and arms were silver, the belly, the hips, and the thighs were of bronze, the legs were made of iron, the feet were a mixture of clay and iron. And it stood motionless, it stood lifeless in the king's dream as suddenly a large stone appeared and it crashed into the feet of the statue, disintegrating it into fine particles which were blown away in the wind. Now we learned that the stone was of divine origin as it was cut out of something. But what that something is we're not yet told. But the cutting out even was not accomplished by human hands. Now we also learned that Nebuchadnezzar was not, was not a wicked man in God's eyes, but rather he was God's servant. In fact, as Daniel's speech to the king reveals, Jehovah had gone so far as to give Nebuchadnezzar dominion over the land and the people and the birds and the domesticated and wild animals which formed the Babylonian Empire. And this circumstance had been foretold by the prophet Jeremiah in uh, Jeremiah 27 and 28. But there was a caveat. That dominion enjoyed by Nebuchadnezzar would only last for three generations. And 
after Nebuchadnezzar and his son and then his grandson had ruled, his dynasty would end and then a series of other kings would rule over Babylon. And once the grandson's rule had ended, God would begin to turn his wrath away from the exiled Jews and towards their conquerors, Babylon. Now, there was an important God principle that we discussed that I want to reinforce today, and it concerns the term latter days. Oh, how we've heard that term a lot. The reason we're going to revisit this is quite simple. Do you truly want to understand what lies just ahead as human history winds its way to a close? The Then unraveling this Daniel mystery is pivotal. And to misread, misuse, or misapply it gives us all false expectations. We must not read into Daniel things that some branches of the modern church have established as unassailable traditions, but are in fact often little more than opinion and speculation that validates some agenda. This is why we're approaching the book of Daniel as we are, and why we're going to have several detours to explain some pertinent history and a handful of crucial God principles that establishes the proper context. In Hebrew, the term for latter days is achrit hayamim, and it literally means in the latter part of the days. This term is really only used for one thing in the Bible, and that is to refer to messianic times. That is, times immediately approaching and during and then shortly after the appearance of God's Messiah. Thus, when studying the Bible, we need to grasp a couple of foundational concepts about the latter days, the Acharit Hayamim. First, there are two sets of latter day times. The first latter days occurred in the decades leading up to when Yeshua was born to the Virgin Miriam, Mary. All during his adult life, as he taught and revealed his identity, and then finally, as he was crucified and rose from the grave. The second latter days is still ahead of us. It's going to happen in the days leading up to when Yeshua returns, the second coming, and then when he fights the battle of Armageddon, and when he begins to reign on earth as a worldwide king. We may or may not be in those latter days right now, although it's my opinion that we are. And the main sign of that is that Israel has returned to its ancient homeland as prophesied. Such a thing can really only be determined with certainty in hindsight. That's the nature of prophecy. So, when the Hebrews who lived prior to Jesus' birth spoke of the latter days, even those who lived many centuries before that day, they were mainly pointing ahead to the era of his advent, of his death, and of his resurrection, even though they didn't grasp that this is what they were looking for. Thus, everything that we read in the Old Testament about the latter days was looking forward to not one, but 
two separate and distinct periods of latter-day events. But until Yeshua came and went, that fact could not have been known. It was a mystery. And even then, that understanding of a second latter days only began to be revealed when the Lord spoke to the Apostle John some years after the temple was destroyed by the Romans. And that conversation is recorded in what we call the book of Revelation. This process of the unfolding of prophecy is the very essence of progressive revelation which is epitomized by the book of Revelation. Now also recognize that only among God's Hebrew people does the concept of a latter days even exist. There was not a concept that Gentile societies of the world held or had they created some other version of it. It's a purely biblical construction and it is entirely related to some activity or another of the biblical Messiah. So in modern times we have to be careful not to lump the latter days and the end times together when we're studying the Bible. Even though the two terms are related, they are not synonymous. They are, there are two latter days. There's only one end times. Unfortunately, that exact thing happens regularly in Christian teaching about the latter days. Obviously, the first latter days, when Christ was crucified, was not the end times, because we're all still here. The world's still being ruled by Gentile governments, and Christ is not reigning in the flesh in Jerusalem. Now stay with me. I know this is a little bit complicated. But part of what we're doing in our study of Daniel is undoing things about the latter days and about the end of days that many of you have been taught that are frankly, biblically, and factually incorrect. And and it leads to so much confusion and misunderstanding. The Bible has no term for what Christians call the end times. To put a finer point on it, the term end times is a made-up term. Rather in Hebrew, there is a term called olam haba. It means the world to come. Thus the world to come, the olam haba, is what comes into being after the olam hazeh, the present world, comes to an end. It is the New Testament book of Revelation that puts the finishing touches on Judeo-Christian understanding of what's going to happen in the second and final latter days. But because the Jewish people as a whole don't accept the New Testament as valid, except for Messianic Jews, of course, then for them, what lays ahead in the latter days is that the Olam Hazeh, 
the present world of Gentile domination gives way eventually to the Olam Haba, a new world of an everlasting age of the kingdom of God that is Jewish dominated. And in fact, that is what the book of Daniel seems to imply when we don't include the New Testament into the equation. So for the Jewish people of today and for the past two thousand years, in general, their vision of the future is quite different than the typical vision of Christianity. The Jewish vision is generally, and I underline generally because everybody doesn't believe the same, is generally not one of a worldwide conflagration fueled by the Battle of Armageddon. And there is no divine Messiah that returns in the clouds from heaven. There is no rapture of God's worshippers off this earth into a safe place. There is generally no earth and universe that's supernaturally annihilated by fire and then also supernaturally reformed into a new earth and new heaven just as it was at creation. Therefore the term end times is a modern Christian label. And those words do not exist in either the Old Testament or the New Testament. So in modern Christianese, when we speak of the end times, it's an imprecise bumper sticker term. And just what it encompasses varies from teacher to teacher, denomination to denomination, and especially novelist to novelist. So let me see if I can sum this up for the purpose of actual scripture study as opposed to the fanciful religious debates and idle chatter of today about the end times which consists largely of opinion, speculation, and often downright fantasy. First, even though the Hebrew people who lived before Christ looked ahead to something like the end times, Their expectation was that the Jewish people would be led into victory over the Gentile world by a charismatic, human Jewish Messiah. And the end result would not involve too much more than a change of human government from Gentile to Hebrew, even if it was a righteous Hebrew government led by the re-established dynasty of King David and based on strict Torah observance. Second, the Hebrews did expect persecution, what we call tribulation, and bad times leading up to this moment of victory. So, for instance, the oppressive rule, the infamous oppressive rule of the Syrian king Antiochus Epiphanes in the mid-2nd century BC that resulted in the desecration of the Holy Temple. This is what caused the Maccabean Rebellion and we celebrate celebrate the the result of that rebellion um, in the reestablishment of the Temple in in the celebration of Hanukkah. This was thought to be indicative of the kinds of conditions that would mean the coming of the Messiah was imminent. Third, for the Jews of the before Christ era, 
The times they lived in was the olam hazeh, the present world conditions, that would eventually lead to the olam haba, the new world conditions, brought about by this coming Jewish Messiah. And in biblical terms, all together, this era of transition from a worldwide Gentile government to a worldwide Jewish government was the Acharit Hayamim, the latter days. The latter days that the biblical Hebrews envisioned were only the first set of latter days during which time the Messiah did come, but they didn't recognize him. Even so, he did not accomplish what the Jews of that day, not even Christ's followers, thought would be accomplished. Mainly, this Messiah did not defeat the ruling Gentile government, the Romans, and set up a new Jewish kingdom. They were unaware of a future second set of latter days that anticipated a second coming of this same Messiah. And fifth, ever since the birth of Christ, those who accept Yeshua as Messiah, whether you're Jew or Gentile, and who thus typically accept the progressive revelation that's offered by the book of Revelation, we are all in one way or another, looking ahead to another latter days. But unlike the first latter days, this time, the latter days will involve the end of the world as we know it. There will not be merely a better human history with merely a change of human government at its heart. Rather, instead, there will be an end to human history as we have ever known it, which is replaced by a divine kingdom as led by a divine king. And somewhere in that process, even the present earth and universe will be destroyed and replaced with something new. And sixth, when Daniel told King Nebuchadnezzar that the dream and the statue and the stone destroying it was all about the Ahrit Hayamim, the latter days, neither of them had any real understanding of exactly what it was that was occurring or what it was going to mean for mankind. Whatever it was, it was future to them. It involved a violent change in world government from Gentile to Hebrew and God was orchestrating it from on high. That's about it. When might it happen? No clue. How is this going to come about? Unknown. So we're going to be fastidious about our reading of Daniel being careful not to read into Daniel things that aren't there or reading over difficult things that are. We equally have to view it from our from the mindset and the worldview of those living in that day, but also from our own modern perspective that's seen 2,600 years of human history played out from the time that book was written. Thus, we have a lot of hindsight into the events following Daniel's interpretation of the king's dream.
Even so, we have to be especially careful not to add some currently popular Christian speculations to the book of Daniel that do little more than lead us down rabbit trails. So, with that challenging task in mind, let's reread part of Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2, we're going to start at verse 36. So if you have a complete Jewish Bible, we're on page 1100. 1100. We're going to read from verse 36 of chapter 2 to the end of that chapter. That is what you dreamt, and now we'll give the king its interpretation. Your Majesty, King of Kings, to whom the God of Heaven has given the kingdom the power, the strength, and the glory, so that whatever people or wild animals or birds in the air live, He's handed them over to you, enabled you to rule them all. You are the head of gold. But after you, another kingdom will rise, inferior to you. Then a third kingdom of bronze, which will rule the whole world. The fourth kingdom will be as strong as iron, and iron can break anything into pieces, pulverize it, and crush it. So just as iron can crush anything, this kingdom will break the other kingdoms into pieces and crush them. Finally, you saw the feet and the toes made partly of pottery clay and partly of iron. This will be a divided kingdom. Yet it will have some of the firmness of iron, since you saw the iron mixed with clay from the ground. And just as the toes of the feet were part iron and part clay, this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. You saw the iron mixed with clay. That means that they will cement their alliances by intermarriages, but they won't stick together any more than iron blends with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will establish a kingdom that will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not pass into the hands of another people. It will break to pieces and consume all those kingdoms, but it itself will stand forever, like the stone you saw, which, without human hands, separated itself from the mountain and broke to pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. The great God has revealed to the king what will come about in the future. The dream is true. Its interpretation is reliable. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell, off, fell on his face and he worshipped Daniel. And he ordered that a grain offering and incense be offered to him. To Daniel, the king said, Your God is indeed the God of God, the Lord of kings, and a revealer of secrets, since you have been able to reveal this secret. And the king promoted Daniel to a high rank, and he gave him many rich gifts and made him governor of the entire province of Babel, head of all the sages of Babel. And at Daniel's request... The king put Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in charge of the affairs of the province of Babel, while Daniel remained in attendance on the king. Before we begin to dissect the meaning that Daniel gave to each part of the symbolic statue of uh, Nebuchadnezzar's dream, we need to consider the use of symbolism in the Bible. Now because the Word of God is essentially attempting to explain eternal 
spiritual principles in the context of a temporal, physical world, a standard biblical technique is to make an illustration of some sort. An illustration that uses common things with which the average person is familiar. I might say, for instance, that to compare God to a human is like comparing a human to an ant. But you wouldn't think, at least I hope you wouldn't, that I meant that God is a type of human being, nor a human is a type of ant. So the Bible uses a number of physical symbols and metaphors and illustrations and figurative expressions, and Yeshua especially loved to use parables to get points across. But none of these are meant to be taken to an extreme. These kinds of symbols and illustrations are not meant to be precise parallels, because none's possible when trying to explain spiritual principles employing physical terms. Thus, for example, when the plans for the wilderness tabernacle were given to Moses, and it was then built accordingly, it was meant as an approximate illustration of the type and order of God's throne room up in heaven. Even to some extent, it was a model of the layout of the Garden of Eden, but only to a point. It wasn't a perfect match. Biblically uh, biblically ordained marriage between a man and a woman is yet another example. It was created as a human institution on earth in order to demonstrate the ideal type of relationship between God and his worshipers. A relationship that's based on trust, faithfulness, and commitment. Which in reality can only occur in perfection from a spiritual perspective. Therefore we find in the scriptures that there is no physical marriage of a human type in heaven. And that the concept that we will one day be Christ's bride and become married to him is meant as a metaphor and must not be carried too far. In fact, if one carried it to the extreme, then we have a male... Christ literally marrying millions of male followers, thus destroying the accepted biblical principle of a marriage being only between a man and a woman. And further, the concept of biblical marriage is that physical consummation between the new husband and wife must occur or there is no marriage. Are we to think that we shall all have physical marriage consummation with Yeshua. Well, of course not. That Christ is our high priest also falls along those same lines. Thus, we have to be careful not to envision Yeshua like we might envision Aaron or any of the long line of Levitical high priests and why he's going to have many attributes that are akin to the Levitical high priests He is also different. He's apart from them 
And he operates at an infinitely higher level. In fact, we are specifically told in Hebrews 7 that Yeshua will not be a high priest of the order of Aaron, meaning of the Levites, but rather of the order of Melchizedek. That mysterious man whom Abraham honored at least six centuries before there was even such a thing as a Levitical priesthood. And even then, that comparison with Melchizedek isn't necessarily limited, so we shouldn't take that too far. So with that understanding, we'll now approach the interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream statue. And the image symbol is an approximation of the succession of Gentile empires that will lead the world towards the latter days. But it is definitely not an exhaustive or precise representation by which we must find a perfect parallel at every turn. Verse 36 says straightforwardly that the statue's head of gold is King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, the kingdom of Babel kingdom of Babylon over which Nebuchadnezzar rules then is personified by the king. Further in ancient times just as a god and the kingdom he presided over were considered to be organically connected so it was often the same regarding the kingdom and its king. At the same time Nebuchadnezzar was quite special in the Lord's eyes, and could be said to be the epitome of Gentile rulership in a similar way to how King David was the epitome of Jewish rulership. But then it would be all downhill from there forward. Thus, we see in the symbolism of that statue a descending inferiority. Gold is the best, silver is inferior to gold, bronze inferior to silver, iron inferior to bronze, but yet only in some senses, certainly not all. So verse 39 explains that after Babylon, another, but it says, inferior kingdom represented by the arms and chest of silver is going to replace it. Now let me say right now, that we would be better served by using the word empire instead of kingdom. Because a kingdom, in its narrowest sense, can be something as small as a single-walled city and a few acres of land ruled over by a petty king. But in its broader context, a kingdom could be as large as worldwide. So we need to envision empires as enormous expanses of land and huge populations consisting of many cultures and races of people all ruled under a central government and that is the sense of it with the four empires of Nebuchadnezzar's dream statue. Now these descriptions of the various empires are, well, they're frustratingly brief. The one that gets the most attention is actually the fourth kingdom, the fourth kingdom of iron. Verse 40 
Well, back up. So we have following that that first kingdom now of gold, the second kingdom of iron, a second kingdom of silver, followed by the third kingdom of bronze, and then in verse 40 it talks about a fourth kingdom, the kingdom of iron. Then there's this explanation that iron is the hardest of all the metals, so it can overcome any of the three weaker metals that came before it, gold, silver, bronze. And from a perspective of the ancient world, see, that symbolism makes perfect sense. Empires were always built through warfare. Gold, of course, is not usable for weapons. Not only because it's so rare and expensive, because it's so soft. It's useless. Silver's a little bit harder, but it also is too soft and expensive to be used as implements of war, but bronze is different. Bronze is halfway between copper and iron in its hardness, and it's certainly far harder than silver. Thus, bronze was used for weaponry because it could hold a sharp edge. But iron, that trumped them all. An iron sword could literally break a bronze sword. The technological development of iron changed the world. It literally altered the balance of power among nations. So verse 40 goes on to explain that since it was common knowledge that iron could break anything, at least anything known to the ancient world, then so would this fourth kingdom of iron crush all the previous ones. No contest. But then we get the representation of another kingdom that some scholars call a fifth kingdom. This is the kingdom or empire that's symbolized by the statue's feet formed of a mixture of clay and iron. See, the idea is that this empire has weak characteristics of clay mixed with strong characteristics of iron. And what we have to envision, though, is not a mixture like we think of a cake. In other words, if we take flour and eggs and milk and sugar and perhaps some, a few other ingredients and then we mix it all thoroughly and bake it, what emerges is a newly created item. The molecules of the various ingredients have interacted and combined and formed a new concoction altogether. But such is not the same with a mixture of iron and clay. Rather, the bits and pieces of iron become suspended in the clay, but the molecules of clay don't interact with the iron and form a new substance. Thus, the mixture of iron and clay is unstable. If you smash a cake, it doesn't separate back into its ingredients. You just get a smashed cake. However, if you, if you smash a hardened mixture of iron and clay, it does separate back into specks of iron and the dust of the clay. Thus, the symbolism is clearly explained in verses 42 and 43. This kingdom of clay and iron consists of ingredients that don't properly mix. And further, it's a divided kingdom. Thus, Parts of the kingdom will be strong, other parts of the kingdom will be weak, because the mixture is inherently brittle. So is this actually...
actually a fifth kingdom or is it just an extension of the fourth kingdom of iron? Well, I think it's clear that the iron and clay mixture is something that the fourth kingdom eventually morphs into. But it is questionable whether it will be viewed by the world as a separate empire. And that is substantiated by the fact that later on in the book of Daniel, Daniel's going to get a vision of four strange beasts that rise. And basically, they symbolize exactly the same thing that Nebuchadnezzar's dream statue represents. Now, thus far, none of what I've told you is opinion or speculation. It's just clearly laid out for us. The symbolism is unequivocally explained by Daniel. We don't have to guess. So now, before we go further, let's see if we can ascertain just who these empires turned out to be. Which part of the statue represents what empire? Well, the first part, the head of gold, is easy because we're told directly in verse 38 that it is Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon. But who's the second kingdom? The conventional wisdom up to the 19th century was that it was the Persian Empire or more technically correct the media Persian Empire. In fact because the symbolism, the symbolism of the four strange beasts is a precise parallel of the statue of the four metals we're directly told the answer to our question in Daniel chapter 8. I'll just read that to you, you don't have to go there. In Daniel 8 16 through 20, it says this. I heard a human voice calling from the bank, uh, from, from between the banks of the Ulai. Gabriel, make this man understand this vision. And he came up to where I was standing. And his approach so terrified me that I fell on my face. But he said to me, human being, understand that the vision refers to the time of the end. And as he was speaking with me, I fell into a deep sleep. With my face towards the ground, he touched me and set me on my feet. And he said, I'm going to explain to you what will happen at the end of the period of fury. Because the vision has to do with the time at the end. You saw a ram with two horns. Those are the kings of Media and Persia. So we learn that the second of the empires, the Silver Empire and the Ram Empire, is ruled jointly by the kings of Media and Persia. What about the third kingdom? Well, in Daniel 8:21 through 22 it says, "The shaggy male goat is the king of Greece." And the prominent horn between its eyes is its first king. And as for the horn that broke and the four which rose up in its place, four kingdoms will arise out of this nation, but not with the power that the first king had. So the male goat, which is parallel to the third empire bronze of Nebuchadnezzar's statue, tells us who this is. He just told us. Who is it? Greece. 
So there we have it. It's perfectly straightforward. It's spelled out for us. Daniel says, the gold head is Babylon, the silver chest and arms are Media, Persia, and the bronze belly and thighs is Greece. And looking back into history, guess what? That's precisely how it went. Babylon was taken over by Media Persia. Media Persia was taken over by Greece. And of course, the fourth kingdom is not named, but we'll get to that. Thus, it's no wonder that Christian commentators up until the time of the Enlightenment didn't find any mystery at all in identifying these first three world empires because the Bible tells us who they are by name. So why today has all that I've just told you been thrown out the window? In fact, the modern Bible commentators of the currently dominant school of Bible criticism tell us that these verses in Daniel must be faulty. Now remember what I told you some weeks ago. The modern school of Bible scholarship says Daniel is a fraud. And what's their evidence? Because since their firm belief is there is no such thing as predictive prophecy, there is no such thing as the supernatural, there, then there is no possible way that Daniel or anybody else could have known things that were in the future to them. Therefore, since history proves that what we read in Daniel actually happened, then the only logical explanation is Daniel had to have been written after the fact and he only pretended to be prophetic. For them there is no other explanation. Now further, to try to bolster their argument, they claim that the writer of Daniel was, among other things, a poor historian, so he got some things wrong. They say that following the Babylonian Empire, there was this Median Empire. And then following the Median Empire, then there was a Persian Empire. And then after that, finally, a Grecian Empire. Empires 1 through 4. Thus, for them, Babylon is the head of gold. Media is the chest and arms of silver. Persia is the belly and thighs of bronze. And Greece is the legs and feet of iron. But I must tell you, History knows of no such thing as a median kingdom or empire. The foremost living Middle Eastern historians of our day must be Anson Rainey and Stephen Notley. And though they are Bible skeptics, even they say forthrightly in their book The Sacred Bridge that there was never such a thing as a median empire. And no such reference exists in the scriptures or in any ancient document ever found. Rather, the, media, the Medes and the Persians were simply strong partners. And together they conquered Babylon and they ruled together over the former Babylonian Empire. And let me say this plainly. The modern Bible scholars tell the academic historians they must be wrong. The historians say there was never such a thing as a Median Empire, but the modern Bible scholars say, but there has to have been. Why do they insist on that? 
Because if there wasn't a Median Empire, then they can't redefine the symbolism of the statue to fit their unbelieving mindset. It's just that simple. But there's another problem with the modern Bible critic's viewpoint. The arms of silver, equivalent to the ram with two horns, plainly tells us of two entities who work together to form a single entity. The two arms are joined at the chest. Media provides the equivalent of just one of the arms. The same applies for the issue of Persia as the belly and the thighs. Persia represents one of the two thighs. Who's the other one? No answer to that question. The modern Bible critics' conclusions completely fall apart. And frankly, they're illogical as they try to rewrite a global history that no one else but them agrees with. One final matter for today. We're told in Daniel 2.39 that the kingdoms that arise after Babylon will be inferior. But inferior in what way? The reality is that the media Persian Empire was much larger than the Babylonian Empire. The Greek Empire was larger still and the Roman Empire stretched from India to Europe. Some early commentators thought, perhaps, the inferiority referred to the declining moral condition of each of the succeeding Gentile empires. But in fact, the Roman Empire was perhaps the most moral of them all and even made Christianity the preferred religion of the empire. The 19th century conservative Bible scholar Dr. Keel believes that the inferiority that Daniel speaks of is pointing towards a lack of inner unity. All empires consist of smaller nations. So the issue of inner unity has to do with the government that rules above all these many nations of their empire. The Babylonian Empire had a strong rulership with the power invested in one family, Nebuchadnezzar's. Daniel and Jeremiah make it clear that God intended for this because he gave Nebuchadnezzar a supernaturally provided dominion over every aspect of his empire. The media Persian Empire government was divided between the ruling families of the Medes and of the Persians so they lacked this rock-solid inner unity of Babylon. The Grecian Empire government under Alexander the Great was in time divided into four provinces each ruled by a different ruling family and each sought only to feather their own nest. And Rome was ruled by various factions, sometimes by emperors as dictators, other times they were more like presidents of a republic. Back and forth this went until later on in 285 AD under Diocletian, the Roman Empire was divided into Eastern and Western empires. But even that vacillated between unity and chaos until that division was finalized in 480 AD. So Kiel, I think, probably has it right. It's about inner unity. 
inner strength of government. And I think we'll stop here and we'll deal with the meaning of Nebuchadnezzar's dream statue some more next time.